The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, June 22nd, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And an update on a sad set of refugees. There is nothing more heartrending than when innocents are caught at the border. They never asked to be born where they were born or what they were. But as the laws of man restricts them, so too must their humps sustain them. Wait, what, humps? Oh yeah, we're talking about camels. Thousands of stranded camels have been reunited with their owners. The beasts were stuck without food or water at a frontier between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, shut because of a feud among Arab powers. This is against camels and against Bedouins who raise camels. So far, the international flare-up between Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and other Gulf rival states was more a set of words than a set of actions, but then they came for the camels. Saudi Arabia said, you Qataris who use our lands to graze, you must not come back here. And it was the camels and about 10,000 sheep who were caught in the crosshairs as it were. The Bedouins who raised these beasts, Reuters said beasts, that was Reuters before, they've already laid down the beast thing. They found themselves prevented from recrossing a newly enforced, now enforced international border. So why do the Bedouins raise camels? The judges also look at the legs to see how straight they are. And they are interested in the height of the camel and its weight and how healthy it is. There are points for all these things. They are also looking for the shape and position of the hump. That's right. Camel beauty competitions. Don't hate them because they're beautiful. Love them for their humps. Their humps. Their lovely camel humps. On the show today, legislative and executive reaction to the Senate health care bill. On the legislative side, it's detailed. It's on point. It's going to be a fight. On the presidential side... It's about things that are feathery. But first, essayist Sachi Cole is here to talk about online harassment, her Canadian pride. And then there is a bit of, oh, fun, good-natured, though possibly uncomfortable pushback that comes from me. Enjoy. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. I am joined now by another of the, oh, 
cli- oh, almost cliched burgeoning pool of uh, Kashmiri Canadian humorists. <laughs> <laughs> Sachi Cole. Sachi Cole has written one day. It's hard to read the book because it has a lot of crossouts. But what it means to be, you got to turn it to yeah. the side. One day we'll all be dead, and none of this will matter. Now I have to say, the marketing materials for this uh, collection of essays touts it as being a debut collection. True, of fierce, funny essays about growing up the daughter of Indian immigrants. Blah blah blah. Now you would expect the fierce and funny to be paired with the fearless, but we find out this is not the case. You are full of fear. Yes, I, I am. Of course, I'm full of fear. That's <laughs> how you. That's how you keep yourself from dying. Uh, the first essay in the collection is about my parents and how mm-hmm. they have instilled fear in me and my brother. Okay. Do you? At what point does this fear become maladaptive? Oh, mm, pretty soon. Because <laughs> I know you said oh, it keeps you from dying. And to yeah, some extent, it does. Not degree. walking into traffic. Yeah. But I don't. I don't eat things I can't recognize. Things uh-huh. like that. I don't like flying. I really don't like flying. That. That's when it starts to get tricky because you need to be able to do that. Well, I unless fly- you want to stay in Calgary for a long time. Yeah. Which and did you? I did not. Why? What's wrong with Calgary? How much do you know about Calgary? So you're uh, saying you're saying it already like you don't Calgary. really know anything about it because I love because people who don't know Calgary say Calgary. No, I didn't say Calgary. You kind of did. I said Calgary, <laughs> Calgary, like Calvary, <laughs> like where Christ was crucified. It's like one syllable, Calgary. Calgary? Yeah. Calgary. Yeah, I kind of rushed through it. Did Calgary agree with you? No, not really. I mean, at the time uh, when I was growing up, it was a pretty white, pretty conservative city. And right, it's not now. Well, I think it's still pretty white, but I mean, they, they've elected a brown Muslim mayor. So there's certainly some shifts happening there. That's been going on actually ever since I left. Mm-hmm. That shift started happening. But I think it is still pretty, pretty white, pretty conservative. And it, I, when I was growing up there, I found it kind of tricky because I didn't see myself reflected anywhere. I know it's, it's a cow town to some extent. They call there, it that. Yes. <laughs> there's, a st- there's a stampede and a mm-hmm. rodeo there. It's a Western town. But was it the case of a majority white population? electing a brown mayor do you know about could we discuss the politics of calgary yeah i mean i i guess it, it was i mean he is very smart i interviewed him for a piece that i did for Maisonov, which is a, a canadian a montreal-based magazine he's really smart and he's really charming like he is he is one of the most enigmatic people that you will meet he just really pulls you in and then you're like I just I just want to hang out with you. Mm-hmm. But it was a really big deal when he was elected. It was it it meant a lot, I think, for brown and Muslim communities in that area because they felt like they were being seen for the first time. Are you fascinated by mysteries? Sometimes. Yeah. Depends on the mystery. Well, you said he was enigmatic. He is. I can't really. Fa- I can't. Magnetic yeah, or I, enigmatic? No, I mean, he's both. Like, yeah. I can't. I honestly can't figure it out because there's <laughs> like when I was talking to him, there were times when he was saying things and I was like, I don't agree with you. Mm-hmm. Like, he has a very different understanding of, of racism in that city than I did. Like, he said that he never felt like he was ever going to be held back because of the color of his skin, which mm-hmm. I, I do believe that he believes that. But I just yeah. don't know if that's how the world works. Did you feel racism? Oh, of course I did. How overt? Uh, depended on the place. Yeah. But I used to get called but the- Calgary up until through high school. So. Yeah, I, yeah. Like I used to get called the N-word a lot in high school. Because okay, so, they just so didn't stupid know. stupid on a couple levels. Like, du- <laughs> like dumb on multiple levels, but like incorrect and dumb. Yeah. It was just um, pre-internet when you couldn't Google anti-Indian phrases. No, it was, <laughs> I, it was like 2006. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they all had Google. Great. <laughs> I guess they could have- 
the other one is raghead, but like I don't wear hijab, so that yeah. also doesn't make any sense. Yeah, like none of them were. No, they're just not very good at it. I mean, race racial epithets are terrible and stupid. Yeah, but, but at least are... like try. Yeah. Like if you're gonna make me listen to it, put your back into it. Yeah, I'm busy. But so th- I would assume though that because they were so bad at insulting you racially, it didn't make you feel bad. You never no. once questioned. No, it did make me feel bad because it still tells you that you don't belong there, yeah. and there are people who are ready to tell you that. Like the certainly because. It's it's incorrect it's maybe easier for me to sort of laugh at it because it's ridiculous but it doesn't take away from the fact that i always felt for a really long time growing up there like this is not where i'm supposed to be there's something different about me and it's not working here but was the where you're supposed to be cashmere was it no but that's that's the tricky thing about first gen kids yes. and that's the tricky thing about not being white and living in a white culture is that you don't really know where you're supposed to go i mean i've never been to kashmir so does the flavor of Canadian racism and American racism, racism, what are the differences? I mean, so I don't live in the state, so I'm yeah. sure there's some like details here that I miss. But what I think is troubling is that Canadian racism, people don't like talking about it. So it takes this really insidious tone because there's so much anxiety about acknowledging that maybe our like shiny, hippy, dippy country is not perfect. People get really angry with you when you point it out. Is that some form of politeness? Yeah, but it's like the intention behind it, I guess, maybe is pure. But when it's executed, you end up feeling like a jerk. So in America, we have this trope, you know, racism. No one wants to talk about it. And then we have this, I think, more to the point counter trope. It's all anyone talks about. Yeah. So in Canada, they really don't want to they talk really about do- it. They really don't. I mean, yeah, the white majority does not want to talk about it. I've I've never encountered a more hostile audience to discussing race than in than white Canadian All audiences. over Canada. Yeah. And, and all races? Yeah, I mean, they're really nervous about it. Because I think in America... I think think there's a scale for it. Mm -hmm. I think they really don't like talking about anti-blackness. And this was sort of happening in Toronto where there was the issue of carding, carding black men without cause. And people really didn't like talking about it because they had to sort of confront their own biases. And they also had to look at institutional biases within like the police force in a city like Toronto, which is, again, multicultural. Um, I want to also talk about in the book, so you are a millennial, you're a child of the internet, you take to Twitter, and I think you go through an arc that a lot of people do uh, with Twitter. (laughs) So in the beginning, you loved it, it validated you. Yeah, it was fun. And I mean, when I started my Twitter account, I was in university and I had like a hundred followers and they were just people I knew in person just me my buddies and, and these all my... were what the late aughts which period of, I think, are we speaking I guess of? like 2010 okay about and it kind of happened over a period of time and I didn't even notice that slowly it became a a public thing I was using. Right, but you became a more public person too. I did, yeah. My job changed. TV, I was doing radio, TV stuff, and yeah. You were employed to give your opinion. Yes. Okay. And this is why a discussion with you will be different from a discussion with a civilian who just says, yes, Twitter can be horrible. And then you would say to them, yes, who doesn't know that? You kind of need Twitter and you need to be on Twitter as part of your sure, job. to some capacity, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Give me the details about when it all went really hairy for you on Twitter. I mean, I think... It can feel like it was one event that sort of broke it, but I do think it was a very it was a slow burn. I was doing a lot more TV stuff. I was doing more things on the radio or on podcasts, and people were getting comfortable with yelling at me. Mm-hmm. And then I was looking for some writers to fill out my roster. I was an editor at the time, and I said that I I wanted more people of color and more people who were preferably not male because we had so many white dudes filling out our roster. As the uh, I think the tweet. 
I'm just quoting it from yeah. memory in the book. Non-white, not male. Preferably non-white, not male. Yeah. Preferably not. People didn't like that. They didn't like that. And the people who were responding were obviously acolytes of uh, John Updike <laughs> and the great white male writers <laughs> saying, "What's wrong with uh, What's wrong with Wolf?" Yes, they accused me of committing white genocide. Yeah, correct. Yeah, what's Gay Talese? What about him? You know what? He doesn't get his due. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. we can all agree on he that. He founded this form of journalism. Okay, so they <laughs> they come back at you. Yeah. And you hold firm? Well, wh- I mean, uh, well, there's nothing to not hold firm on. Sure. Like, it, what all no, I, no, what no. I, of course, it sure, is. your sure, point sure. is correct. Right. But the, I guess, tactic or strategy is do I disengage or every one yeah. of these often idiots, yeah. do I give him a curt response? Right. So at the beginning, because it felt uh, still like something I could control and put in my hand, yeah. I was like, okay, I'll do this. Like, yeah. fine, let me argue with you about affirmative action because I believe in that. But then at a certain point, you're doing it and then you get like your 400th tweet and you're like, okay, well, this isn't working. So your boyfriend gets concerned. People get concerned. Yeah. It becomes death threats, rape threats, all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, it became like people were trying to figure out where my office was so that they could follow me home from my office to find out where I live. Did you talk to the people at the office? Did they get the police involved? Did you get security I don't involved? think we got to that point. Yeah. I mean, uh, police has no idea what to do no, with things flummoxed. like this. There was a case in Toronto recently, a harassment case that had to do with Twitter. A man was harassing a couple of female activists in the city and it went nowhere. There was there's a, a, a history and a precedent for attacking women on Twitter. Yeah. There is a game plan for it. Yeah. And it's sucky to be in the position, but you have to decide how you're going to strategize it. Yeah. You have to decide to what extent are you going to engage, to what extent are you going to pull back, and then you have to evaluate your decisions. And I'm guessing from you telling me, it seems instinctive at first, mm-hmm. right? You're f- f- the first 400 people you yeah, it's easy. go back at. You but just then, swap them like flies. Okay. So then during the course of this thing, how did your strategy change and why did it change? Well, it shifted largely because my family started to get involved. They were trying to uh, find where my family lives and try to get a hold of my parents and the the thing that actually really drove me crazy was that they were I had a few photos of my niece who at the time was a five or six Ugh. and she's biracial and so they were making comments about her ethnic makeup and that we were self-loathing and we needed to bring whiteness into our family because we were desperate for it and that's sort of when I was like okay this isn't fun anymore and this isn't just me like it's one thing if you're just running after me it so just what wasn't you, fun anymore so what did you do go Twitter silent I deactivated my account because yeah. I just didn't want to play and I didn't want to look at it anymore which I would argue almost made it worse because then people thought that I was they thought I had deleted my account or they thought that I had been banned from Twitter for some reason and then there was a lot of talk around my cowardice that I had I had run away from something that I had started. And, and then it just sort of went on for a while without me. Did it change the way you use Twitter? Yeah, I'm I'm I think a little more cautious about who I'm going to engage with. And directly, right? Yeah, or e- even indirectly. Like I mean, sometimes it is like fun and you do get some power back by yelling yelling back. Sometimes you do. But sometimes you don't and it just feels like you're actually losing patience and you're losing time precious time out of your life screaming back at these idiots and so i think i've gotten to a point where i don't feel like i need to play at all if you had the thought about i need some diversity within this roster of writers i'm trying to put together would you phrase that thought any differently no no and i get asked that a lot because people didn't like the way that i phrased it yeah but i think when you say i want writers of color or I need more brown or black girls to write for whatever 
what a lot of women of color read, and I myself have read this when editors have come to me looking for work, is that what they're saying is, I need somebody in this religious or ethnic or whatever background to write about that specific thing. Oh, yeah. And I used to hate that when editors would come to me because they wanted like a brown girl to write about being oh, brown. Man, and I talked to I... you about being brown in Calgary. <laughs> well, no, so I wrote sorry. a book about it. It's I know. okay. So you open yourself okay. up for I did. Those that's relevant fine. questions. That's totally yes. fine. So that's a, like that's something I like to do. But I know a lot of women who don't want to just do yeah. that. It is really pigeonholing. I didn't want to use that language. And quite frankly, like if it upsets the most privileged class of worker, I I don't feel that sorry for them. One time I was uh, nominated for an award. I, I, I didn't win. Yeah, that's it. We can end the interview. All right. <laughs> I was nominated for an award and someone who I like and follow saw all the other people who were nominated and said, it's time for uh, these awards. Whatever you do, let's vote for the non-white men. And I was like, great, way to go. Okay, super. Okay, you're but you're but you're taking you're taking like a a political conversation personally. Uh-huh. But it's not about you. Well, if I am a white man and they're saying vote against the white men, it is about me. But that's because of like centuries of of structural disadvantage. Like the it Okay. I mean, listen, if In if, the Webby Awards, centuries? I mean, is that the thing you're sad about is the Webby? No, I'm Awards? not sad about it. I I did it it didn't bother me at all. This is what I really think. If that's your opinion, fine. But if you expect for people to pat you on the back for that opinion, you are saying, let's discriminate against this class of people because they have had it so good and have been so privileged for years. And I will not dispute the second part, but I will say, <laughs> let's discriminate against this class of people. Never feels good to that class but you, of people. But you're looking at it as discrimination and I'm looking at it as sort of holding other people up. I mean, I sincerely doubt that sentiment was like a hundred percent sincere. I think, I think it's sort of no, the same. I, I think it's in the same clap, clap. Not you, but the person. I, I see so many people putting out an idea that, oh, I'm so sick of white people. Like white people are going to be upset by that. I understand why you would say it. I understand why you would say, look, I have license to say it. I understand why you would say for five centuries in this hemisphere, I haven't been able to say it. Understand all that. But just know how white people are going to react. Uh, what what could benefit all of us the most? Probably not the most alienating tones. That's what I would say. Okay. Yeah. I don't agree with you. Why not? Because I don't, because I think if standing around and like trying to be friendly and trying to be cool with everybody worked, it would have worked by now. I don't think so. But don't so. you think people no, of color, people totally of color have spent a very that. long time trying to swallow like certain behaviors from the majority and yeah. being cool with it. And listen, we've done it for a really long time. Yeah. And it doesn't work. But I just, I think it's really interesting to say that a tone that's not aggressive is a failed tone. Like that's not, I the didn't right say it was a it. failed tone. I just don't think it's a, f I don't think it's always very effective. And I, again, I don't think it's my responsibility. I never to said be it was nice. your responsibility. I don't know. I just, I don't think it's the responsibility of women or people of color or anybody who's not in the majority to be nice to people who are comfortable. Well, I think that it might be the smart way to get things sometimes. Well, I know you think that because yeah. you would be one of, you would be a symbol of something, something that but Barack Obama thinks this. Okay, well, I disagree with him then. I okay. don't know what you <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to get me to say. I often hear that people say, you know, well-behaved women never rarely make history. Yeah, I think that's wrong. There are certainly radical people who've made history and there're certainly non-radical people who've made history. I don't know. I just think it's kind of romantic to think that radicalism is the only way to make progress. Well, we're not I'm not I don't think anything I say is radical. I don't think I'm saying I'm, I don't think I'm speaking harsh, alienating, bold. I think bold well, listen, if it's alienating, stuff. that might speak more to the person who's feeling alienated than it does about me. Yeah. OK. I'm glad we got there. Yeah. One day we'll all be dead and none of this will matter.
This is the new book by Sachi Cole. I, I just, I guess I was spoiling for a fight and you were sitting next to me. Did we have you a fight? Re- I think we did. Yeah, at the end we did. But I think I got somewhere. Oh. Thank, thank you, Sachi. I'm sorry you lost at the Webby Awards. <laughs> it wasn't about that. It was. <laughs> you don't get the last word. It's my show. <laughs> <laughs> And now the spiel. The Republicans have unveiled their health care bill. In a surprise announcement, the Republicans simultaneously released their health care bill into theaters, Blu-ray, DVD, and the streaming service McConnellify. A part of a massive media blitz, the recording sessions of the bill have leaked, but in many cases, they bear no resemblance to the final product. Long rumored to include a duet with Lil Wayne, the healthcare bill instead strips coverage of tens of millions of Medicaid recipients and eliminates a provision that will require people to have health care at all. But as was rumored in Pitchfork and Congressional Quarterly, abortion restrictions will not be part of the bill, so it could pass with just getting 50 votes in the Senate as part of reconciliation. Okay, here's the deal. I will hold off on weighing in fully until it is scored. I love you, CBO. I will assess the political play. And it goes like this. Mitch McConnell isn't stupid. That's actually how he ends all his ads for office. I'm Mitch McConnell. I approve this message and I ain't stupid. The biggest pain felt will be from the Medicaid recipients who now find their benefits cut. Now, of course, the bill doesn't say we're going to cut Medicaid benefits. It allows a few steps, possibly plausible deniability, Uh, It could get confusing if you don't pay attention. The federal government can blame the states. But what they're doing is they're setting a cap, a per capita cap on benefits. And states can choose, I guess, to go bankrupt paying for benefits that the feds used to pay for. But the feds are essentially saying no more benefits from us. Who gets Medicaid, you ask? The takers, right? Sure. Well, it's 40% of all births and 60% of children with disabilities get Medicaid benefits. Now, I guess those children do not, in fact, contribute to the common wheel as much as a libertarian would like them to. Back in the days of Sparta, uh, the libertarians at the time would have abandoned a lot of these people in the woods to die. So progress. But what this new bill seems to do is buy GOP legislators time because the real cuts don't go into effect until 2021 and two thirds of the Senate will get through at least one election before anyone starts feeling the pain acutely. And while there are some senators who might squirm in the next election or down the road, mostly they're insulated from the real cuts. What they could do is they could claim, hey, we kept the promise. We repealed Obamacare without, you know, actually repealing Obamacare, just damaging its effectiveness. There are four senators who say they can't sign the bill as it's written. They're not lying, but the key phrase there is as it's written. Uh, You got fiscal conservatives, Lee, Cruz, Paul, and also Johnson of Wisconsin. They're all grumbly. And then there's this. I'll read a Washington Post snippet. One potentially ominous sign for leadership was the reaction after the draft's release of Nevada Senator Dean Heller who's up for re-election in 2018, Heller released a statement saying he has serious concerns about the bill's Medicaid provisions. That would be ominous if leadership weren't also professional politicians. I mean, of course Heller's going to say that. No matter what Heller decides, he definitely has to signal, I put a lot of thought into this. There was a lot of hand-wringing. 
that's what he's going to do. I'm not saying he's not actually putting a lot of hand-wringing into it, but he's going to say that. The other benefit of saying, ooh, I have serious concerns, is that maybe you get more concessions, right? It worked in the House. Representative Upton of Michigan and Billy Long of Missouri, they expressed their concerns. They got a few billion dollars in the bill to help them. And even if it doesn't really help real people, you could sell it as, hey, I was looking out for you. Now, let's go to the senators who object for mostly ideological reasons. Cruz, Paul, Lee, they're trying to get a better negotiating position, too. Ron Johnson of Wisconsin is not exactly in that group in Wisconsin. They're really concerned about their constituents and if their constituents will react. The other three mainly want to demonstrate ideological consistency. They really hate paying for people's health coverage. That's honest. They are honest about that. They just hate it. The president might call them mean, but they are honest. So what did the president say about this? Well, he busted out a slide rule, put on his green visor, start going through a point by point. Come on. He yesterday was at a rally in Iowa, said a bunch of things. Not all of them were true. Some of them were, but we don't have time to go through all of them. Said a new coal mine was opening. Yeah, it is. Guess when it was scheduled to open? Before he was elected. But then he did talk about this alternative power source. We use electric, we use wind, we use solar, we use coal, we use natural gas. We will use nuclear if the right opportunity presents itself. We're going to be strong for the future. We're going to be strong for the future. I don't want to just hope the wind blows to light up your homes and your factory. As the birds fall to the ground. We on the gist have followed this obsession. What is he talking about? Birds falling on the ground? Well, back in May when he was campaigning last May in Bismarck, and he also mentioned in California, he went to town on wind turbines, that they're an ornithological nightmare. Trump got radicalized on the issue when he bought a golf course in Scotland about a decade ago and wanted those turbines that were marring his golfer's view taken down, did some research or someone did for him, and turns out they kill birds. He, of course, overstates the number of birds they kill, but he says it again and again and again. Wind is a problem. When the oratorical cover that your president is giving you for a key piece of legislation that is vital to his and your legacy, when that's what he's saying, you have got a problem. So what you have to do as a senator is you have to go it alone. You have to weigh, will this bill provide you energy in the next election, or will you get sliced up in its blades? Caca. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Chris Berube, once presided over a platypus beauty contest, and he got real with the contestants. Pulchritude, not platitude. Mary Wilson also produces The Gist. She has judged a llama beauty contest, poise, accuracy, and swimsuit. Oh, accuracy is spit accuracy. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Once judged a pretty pig competition, but then he called the winner Miss Piggy because she was a pig. The Gist. We've judged a bovine beauty contest. The winner, when asked, what would you do to end world hunger, answered, eat me. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.